All right, podcast number seven. You aren't aware of this out there, but I'm doing both six and seven in the same day. We're trying to get these out every couple of weeks, and uh, we were short there about a month due to travel. But well, podcast six was just released, and now we're going to kick into podcast seven. Podcast seven is going to be things to consider when hiring a private rescue company. Oh, did you miss me? Welcome to the Ronin Rescue Cast. We're pleased to have you. Ronin's comprised of a bunch of slightly deranged individuals that wander the globe in search of that elusive rescue unicorn. We compete, we train, we do rescue work. We're looking for that end-all, be-all system. You know, the one, the one that's going to do everything for you. We haven't found it yet, but we found a bunch of interesting things along the way, and we just wanted to share that with all of you out there. What are we going to look at today? Well, what to look for when you're hiring a private rescue provider. And we've talked about this a lot. We kind of knocked this off the radar for a little bit, but thought we'd bring it back up. There's a lot of different rescue providers out there in a lot of different parts of the country, and you never really know what you're going to get. So we're just going to go through a short list here. I say short, but these things are never less than about 30 minutes. Today I'm going to try, I promise, to give you a short list of what to look, like, look at when you're looking for a private rescue provider. Now a couple of the big items here. There's a few different types of rescue. Self-rescue, external rescue, entry rescue, calling 911, you know, or having a third-party rescue. When you decide that you're going to be looking for a third-party provider or you're going to be looking for calling 911 or whether you're going to be doing this yourself, there's obviously a bunch of stuff that needs to go into that, whether or not you have a champion in your program, someone that's willing to take a look at your equipment, look after your equipment. You're going to have to replace your equipment on certain intervals. Whether You're going to keep your training up or whether you're going to contract that out. And this is what we're talking specifically about today is contracting that out. So, first of all, prevention. When you're looking at a rescue provider, do you want somebody that's just going to be standing there, ready to respond at a moment's notice, sleeping in a truck somewhere, or do you want someone that's out actively trying to help prevent you from having to rescue somebody? The issue with rescuing somebody is it definitely screws up your day on your site. You're going to have your local work safe, workers' compensation body in there doing an investigation. You're going to have the injury to the person. There's going to be costs associated with that. So if you've got a rescue provider coming in anyways, why not have them start to do other tasks around there that may help with the prevention of a rescue having to occur? The other big question we get is, why don't I just call 911? And some jurisdictions calling 911 is certainly an option. It's getting rarer and rarer though. And the reason for this is the duration of time it takes 911 to respond to a rescue. 911 is a great service. Most full-time professional fire departments want to be able to reach the incident within five minutes. That doesn't mean that it's their rescue team that's going to reach the incident in five minutes. It just means you might get a pumper truck, an engine, maybe a squad or a medic reaching it in five minutes. Most large departments only have one, maybe two stations in which they have rescue capability. And what we're talking about here is technical rescue specifically. So confined space or a high angle type problem. 
that could be at the other side of the district. Now, even if that's an 11 or 12 minute run, look at the time frame. The incident occurs, the people on site are notified, they call 911, they get that information. What are we talking about? Three, four minutes now? The correct information gets to the dispatcher that it is a technical rescue incident. They dispatch technical rescue resources. Another 11 minutes, what are we talking now? 15, 16 minutes since the incident occurred before they arrive. They're going to have to get to that location, perform their assessment, set up and rig, and then enter the space or go over the edge. We could be talking quite realistically 25 to 30 minutes from the time it occurs until the time they're ready, that 911 service, to go in and do that work. If you have a service, you know, a fire department that's near you that has a quicker response, their technical rescue station's closer to yours, or you have some other agreement, by all means, look at taking that. It's uh, usually a public service provided by the taxpaying dollar, and it's certainly cheaper than bringing in a private provider. Most legislations, though, will not allow you to wait 30 minutes to provide first aid to your injured worker or allow you to have 30-minute wait in providing rescue. Therefore, 911's usually not an option for these types of events. So on top of that, now we've come, all right, we've got to look, we've got to find our private rescue provider. So there's a few things we want to take a look at with our private rescue provider. Let's start with the big first one. Are they insured? Are they actually insured to do the job they're supposed to do? Now, I can speak from some experience here in regards to insurance. There's only a few companies in the world that insure what we do. And there's some big caveats that come along with this. There's certain areas we're not allowed to work or we have to pay extra money to work. If we're working water, for instance, it requires separate retainers than if we're working confined space. So those things exist. So make sure that whoever you're providing or whoever you're hiring to provide your rescue is insured to actually do that job. They're insured to rescue you. Now, this gives you some background um, into them as well because most of these insurance companies will not allow them to be insured unless there are checks and balances in place within that organization. For us, I know we run a cloud-based system called D4H where all of our jobs and all of our quals and everything for our people go into. We've created a qualification system consisting of your rescue technician, your rescue team lead, and your rescue team lead level one that has a certain level of qualifications and requirements that are tracked for each level The reason we're doing that primarily is to keep our insurance company happy and to keep our, you know, costs down and to keep us insured. So if they have the proper insurance, there's a good chance that that rescue company has had to go through some sort of vetting process like that. So ask for their certificate of insurance or ask to be added as, you know, additional insured onto their certificate of insurance. The standard insurance in the industry out there right now for rescue is five million bucks. It used to be two when I started this back in 03, but now we're up to about five million dollars to do this. The other thing to check is, do they have errors in emission assurance as well as third-party general liability? 
the errors and omissions, if they're training your staff or directing your staff to do something, is required. That is that piece that says, you know, they're competent and know what they're doing in order to provide that sort of advice or that sort of oversight to your people. As well, what about automobile coverage? Do they have the appropriate automobile coverage to be on your site? You know, business coverage for usually $2 million nowadays to get automobiles onto sites. Some people want higher. That's just, you know, going out there. Incorporated. Is the company you're dealing with incorporated? And I ask this simply because, I mean, it's one of these things. If it goes wrong somehow, is the company still going to be there? Is this somebody that's, you know, self-employed running out of their basement? Or is this an organization that if something happens on your site, it'd be a little bit more difficult just to fold up and walk away, right? Is there going to be someone there you can deal with at the end of the day? And is it a registered company? you know, somewhere in the world. There are some things that have to be done for registration. For instance, the owners of the company can't be criminals. Um, You know, there's some little bit of checks and balances for you there. Do they have workers' compensation coverage for either where they're working or for where their head office is if they're shipping staff in? Now, in Canada, there is different workers' comps requirements right across the province. As Ronan, we carry workers' comp in a multitude of provinces. We have to because we employ people in a multitude of provinces. Now, we, you need to be able to ask for a clearance letter or a proof of workers' compensation for your workers and for the workers that you're bringing in on site. So they should be able to provide that for you. Uh, ask for their safe work record if that exists in those jurisdictions. How long have they been in business? You know, let's go back three, five years. Have they had any accidents? Are they working safely? Training. So, what kind of training do they have? Are the training is the training adequate for the task that's going to be performed? Have they received training from third-party organizations? Do they have any recognized designations for that training? Now that's also leads back into your insurance. Our insurance company wanted to ensure that we had some third-party training for, for instance, our team leaders. Our team leaders have to take the trade safety coordinator course, which is week one of your construction safety officer, and our rescue team lead level ones have to be CSO or construction safety officer certified. We're also looking at other things, for instance, NFPA certifications, like an incident safety officer or a fire officer to fill that, but basically third-party recognized certification for some of these positions that these people hold coming into your site. You know, basically, are they able to do what they say they can do? Equipment. Is the equipment that the provider using approved and appropriate for the task they're performing? Do they know what's acceptable for the use in the industry? Are there records of that equipment in regards to its serviceability? So when you look at this, you know, are they coming in with stuff that's going to make sense for your rescue? Do they have the equipment that's required or are they just Mickey Mousing it in the corner there somehow? Is it meet the certifications you require? Most rescue gear falls under National Fire Protection Association, NFPA. 
You know, there might be some gear that requires CSA, NIOSH if they're using respirators, ANSI depending on where you're working. So these things, make sure that they have, you know, proper gear that's serviceable and in decent condition. At any given time, I can take a piece of gear that is required to be recorded like a rope. I can bring it up in an online system for a client and show them, hey, this is how many times it was used. This was the last time it was inspected etc. This is when it was purchased, you know, all that sort of jazz. And that should be readily available if people are doing this at a professional level. Safety programs, the old health and safety program. Now, you might be dealing with people that are smaller and maybe they're under, you know, 20 or 50 people, depending on where you're located and don't necessarily require a health and safety program. I would challenge that for the work that we are doing, we are entering at times high hazard confined spaces. We're working at extreme heights. We're wearing respirators. We're dealing with bloodborne pathogens. I would go out on a limb here and say that they should have a health and safety program. As an organization that you hire and bring in, you want to ensure that if they're representing themselves to you know, look after your safety and your people, they should at least have some sort of health and safety program that they're following themselves and ask for a copy of that or at least the table of contents to ensure that it's there and it covers different items, their equipment inspections, if they have vehicles, what sort of training and what kind of inspections they're doing on that. Do they have respiratory programs? Do they have confined space programs? All that should be readily available for you if you want to hire these folks or they want to come and work for you. Now, part of the health and safety program is, does the program fulfill its obligations? For instance, fit testing. You know, we need NIOSH-approved respirators that are going to meet things like, you know, I'm talking SCBA here. So are the people fit tested? Is it fit tested quantitatively or qualitatively, depending on which CSA standard is being followed and enforced in that particular jurisdiction? So are these things being done? Can these people hand over a fit test? You know, not only is it in the program, but are they actually following it? Can we say, hey, you know, Billy's coming on your site. Here's his fit test record. Yeah, he's, you know, allowed to wear that mask or allowed to use utilize that piece of equipment. First aid. Now, does the rescue provider you're looking at have current licensed first aid qualified staff? And where you are in this country, in this world, that becomes dependent on the local jurisdiction. For instance, in British Columbia, our staff that are our leads have to have both their EMR license and an OFA 3 ticket because in BC, you got to have an occupational first aid ticket. Most of the rest of the places we work, the EMR license will suffice. If you're hiring firefighters, you know, or do they have only a first aid certificate that's only relative or only recognized within the fire service? A lot of first aid providers use paramedics, firefighters, police on their days off. You want to ensure that their medical ticket or medical license or first aid ticket, whatever it is they have, is relevant outside of them working as a public agency, but also on a private agency on that work site. Does it make sense for you on that work site? Why wouldn't you also have them fill the first aid role on your site if they're available? If they're there anyways, and they have to, and they're going to be the first point of contact likely for first aid, why wouldn't they? A uh, little story on a site that we were on. I won't get into too much detail on where it is, but needless to say, we were working confined space rescue standby. We were down underneath a site. Our staff were 
um, underground for a bit, if that would be the best way to put it. When they came out, there was a bunch of commotion up top. They were leaving for the day. Somebody broke into that site, climbed up part of the, one of the cranes that was there, and killed themselves by jumping off of it. The first aid attendant for that site arrived, was visibly shocked by what had occurred. Our staff being rescue professionals, both you know working for fire service or working for Ronan in full-time capacity, had seen this more often than this first aid attendant had and therefore took over the scene, took over the, you know, there was no first aid to perform, but took over that scene and the care around that scene, briefed incoming emergency responders and what have you. So if they're going to end up, you this rescue provider, taking on this role anyways, why not look and see if they can actually do it? Rescue procedures. Does the rescue provider actually have rescue procedures to do what they're doing? Are they providing it, you know, to you? Is there a piece of paper or whatnot that they're providing you, whether it be digital or hard copied, that says, hey, you know, this is what we're looking at for a rescue. This is the gear that we're going to use. This is the procedures that we're going to implement. And we have the ability, the training and the equipment on site to make sure that that's actually going to happen. Contracts. Does the rescue provider you're looking to hire have any other contracts doing this type of work? Do they have internal service contracts that they have available to provide for you, i.e. a rescue contract or some sort of rescue form for you to sign that you shows that they would actually do some of this? Sorry, my phone's buzzing off the hook here and just dinging in the background as well. Um, so, like I say, do they have other contracts that they're doing this? Can they provide you with that reference? Um, you know, somebody else that they've done like work for, whether that be confined space, whether that be high angle. And do they have a rescue service contract that they could show you? Mock drill. How, can they do a mock drill? One of our clients, we got hired to do work for, listened to us give this speech or this uh, presentation at a CSO conference. And we get a call from this individual and they tell us that, you know, this mock drill, we say, hey, you know, grab a backpack that weighs 100 pounds, turf it in the space, tell your rescue provider, go get it. If they can't get it out, they're not going to be able to get you out. Sure enough, we get a phone call and they say, hey, uh, you know, we listened to this this uh, presentation you gave at the CSO conference, and we did this. We threw this backpack in there, and we're like, right on. What was the outcome? And they said, well, if you can come down here and get this backpack out, you can have the contract. Because the provider that they had hired couldn't get the backpack out of the space. And this is becoming more and more common. There's a lot of large uh, governmental-type organizations that we do work for that this is a requirement to get on site, to be able to prove that you know what you're doing. And if you're hiring a rescue provider, by all means, grab a backpack, put 100 pounds of whatever, sandbags or whatever in it, lower it into the space and say, hey, go get it out. And let them, you know, proof's in the pudding. Can they get that out of that space in what you consider a reasonable amount of time? Do they have the proper gear on site to make that occur? And if not, hey, as far as I'm concerned, they're violating their contract with you. Kick them off site. Get someone else that knows what they're doing. Speaking of, uh, you know, doing rescues, what other services can they provide? We talked a little bit about first aid earlier. Hey, can they do first aid on site for you? 
Can they do other services? Will they do whole watch if this is confined space? Well, can they take over responsible supervisor if this is a confined space? Can they go around and do some sort of inspections uh, as long as it doesn't take away from their rescue duties? Are there other duties that they can do on site that may be able to be a value added for your organization as opposed to just having two or three individuals sitting around there you know, doing nothing but waiting for something to go wrong. Always see if there's some sort of value added that you can get for your or from your rescue provider. Now, this starts to also go into how many people we should have on site. At Ronin, we deploy a lot of two-person teams. That's not to say that that's the end-all, be-all. That's not to say that other people aren't going to deploy more or less. But two-person teams, we generally have the ability to send somebody in and have somebody on the outside running a lifeline or a tagline to that person to help extract that person because my responsibilities as an employer are much like yours. I have to be able to rescue my person. So that that second person outside has the ability to do that. They could also run as a whole watch or whatnot because they're not going into the space. Should the space be high hazard, i.e. they've got to be going in on air, or should there be some sort of convoluted um, infrastructure or hazards inside the space that they could get entangled with, we may have to put a third person on site. Should, you know, there be other parameters in there, that may go from there. But that's something you want to be able to have an honest and open conversation with your rescue provider as to how many folks they're going to need on site. And it should be reasonable. And it should be reasonable both ways in that aspect. So all in all, these are things that you need to look about when hiring a rescue provider. There's enough of us out there now that you do have your choice. And by all means, you don't have to take the first people that come along, whether that be us or anybody else, but go and be make an informed decision, have some conversations with these people, make sure they can do what they say they can do, make sure they're qualified and insured to do what they say they can do, and see what else they can do for you while you're on site. That's it for... Uh, Podcast 7, I told you to have this one short, 21 minutes.